Well, I've entitled the message today, An Urgent Appeal to Contend for the Faith. As I mentioned uh, in the last hour, my, wife, my family and I moved back to San Antonio. I'm originally from San Antonio. We moved back uh, February of last year. And so you, you that have moved to a different house, a different city, state, and you know it's, there's a lot that goes into it. I had a new job. We were in a new house, a new city, a new church. Along with those things, there, there are some uh, responsibilities of changing, uh, assigning documents for certain things. We were newly in our, we were just settling into our new house. And I was doing something on my device, and I'm sure it pertained to one of those things. can't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was concentrated and really focused on what I was doing. Make sense? It was an important task that I was doing. I was around the kitchen, and my wife was on the other end, and she called out to me. As I was in the middle, focused on doing what I was doing, she called out to me, Jonathan, look at Judah. And Judah is over there. He's three now, but at the time he was about a year and a half, more or less, well, a little, maybe a little more than a year and a half. And so what was he doing? He, he somehow crawled up on the table, the dining room table, and was hanging with his feet dangling with his elbows on the table like that. Now, this is very common for a child to do that. Now, what, what would have been the worst situation right then and there? If he had fallen possibly getting, you know, a little bruise on his, on his leg, on his arm, you know, not a big deal. That's what kids do. Kids run around, play, and get hurt. But let's change the situation a little bit, okay? At the time, we lived in a two-story home, house. Let's say, hypothetically, changing the, the story around, let's say that my son now is on the ledge holding on <laughs> with his feet dangling, and that drop would not be like the, the couple feet drop, okay? That would have been a totally different situation, would it not? So let's replay it. My wife calls to me. I'm, I'm focused. I'm doing something very important on my phone. But, but now you can feel the intensity, right? I mean, this is, this is no comparison to what had happened earlier. My wife calls and you can, you can imagine the fear that she would have, the, the intensity, the, the panic, Right? And you can imagine my response to it. It wouldn't be like any trivial thing. My, what would my response be? Anything that I was doing, anything and everything that I was doing, completely pushed to the side. It's irrelevant. Right? I mean, all of my energy, all of my strength, anything and everything in me is going to that boy. Right? And bringing him down. Why? Because... Obviously, there's, there's imminent danger that awaits him, potential danger that awaits him because of his situation. Well, in the book of Jude here, we find something similar. We see in verse 3 that Jude had a direction. He was on a path. He had something in mind that he thought was important. But then something happened. Somehow it was brought to his attention an imminent, immediate, impending danger, potentially, that awaited his hearers. So again, I've entitled the message, An Urgent Appeal to Contend for the Faith. I have three main points for the message today. First, who wrote this letter? Who, who is this person writing to us? Who's the author? Second, who is he writing to? Who's the audience? And third, why is he writing this letter? What's the purpose of this? So again, let's go back. Jude, verse 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. We're going to go through the first two points a little quicker than the last point. And so Jude, we want to know who, who this Jude is. Is Well, he says he's a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So there you go. He introduced himself, and now we can move on to the next point. No, not quite, not yet. Okay, let's, let's, let's zoom in here for a moment. 
Even though we're going to go quick, we're not going to go that quick. Okay. Jude. I don't know if any of you or maybe some of you might know this. Raise your hand if you do. Did you know that Jude, in the original, he, it's a different name. It's not Jude. Actually, don't raise your hand. The name in the original is Judas. Okay? Judas. Even if, if you have a Spanish Bible or if you've seen the Spanish Bible, it still says La Carta de, de Judas. The letter of Judas. Okay, so the English translators, in order to avoid confusion with Judas Iscariot, obviously, they changed, they shortened the name to Jude. And you might think, so what? Why is this relevant? Why does it matter? Why are we learning this? What's the big deal? Well, don't turn there, but just listen. Matthew thirteen fifty-five. This is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says there, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Remember, he introduced himself as a brother of James, the slave of Christ. But, okay, here in Matthew 13, we see that Jesus is the brother of James and a couple others, I'm not going to connect all the dots. There's, there's different places we can go, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you and, and assert it straightforward due to time. Jude, who's writing to this letter, Judas, he's not only James's brother as he's promoting it and proclaiming it. No, he's also the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that he's the brother of our Lord Jesus and he doesn't mention it, it should get us to pause for a moment and consider, reflect, why is he... I mean, this, it would be so much quicker and easier to identify him if he just said he's the brother of our Lord. Why did he not do that? Think about how he's promoting himself. In relation to Christ, what does he say about himself? That he's his slave, slave of Christ. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. He, he found no value... No reason. He, he, didn't, he didn't have any reason, any value he, did he see in even mentioning his relationship to Christ as his biological brother. Now think about how easily, how natural it would have been for him to just slip that in there in his introduction like he did with James. If he had said that, he would not have been lying. He wouldn't have been telling us anything deceitful. He would have been telling us the truth. But he knew full well the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 12. Jesus said this, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If Jude was merely, only, the brother, the biological brother, he knew it meant absolutely nothing at all. Mankind, by nature, you and I, <laughs> all of us here, we are naturally bent. We are wired. We are prone to boast in the flesh. And even in, as crazy as it might sound when we step back and think about it, in, in family and people, relationship, connections, we are bent and prone and accustomed and wired to boast in even that. Man is so bent on boasting in the flesh. Well, shortly after I was converted, I had an open door with a family friend. This is a lady that we've known for a long time. She was a professing Christian, an uh, older woman. I had the opportunity, a wide open door, to talk to her about the gospel of Christ and what she hoped in in order to be right with him and go to heaven. And you know one of the things, the, the, one of the primary things that she wanted to bring up and highlight? It was that ever since she was a little girl, her parents, her own parents, were missionaries. Her own parents were missionaries, and there you have it. That was where she was resting, and that's where she found her hope. This is not something that is unique to her. It is 
common for people to think this way. This lady that I'm talking about, she actually ended up passing away maybe a couple months after this conversation. I mean, I don't know every single person here. I don't know how much time we all have. But you need to know this. You do not have any sort of special connection. You have no favor. You have no favor with this God based on anyone you know, based on any connection you might have with anyone. None. Zero. You sitting here today must be born again. I must be born again personally. Jude made his mention of his connection to Christ only be that he was his slave. So it matters not who you have a connected, a connection with. That being a slave to Christ, that's all that matters for you here today. Think about this. You can have a connection in the flesh with the most holy person on the planet. Jude had that, didn't he? Jesus Christ? Jude had that with the not only the most, the most perfect that existed right then and there, the perfect one, the holy son of God, his own brother. Yet, it meant absolutely nothing to him at all. Only that, the only thing that he cared about is that by the grace and mercy of his God, he was a slave of Jesus Christ. And so that's the question for us here today. Are you a slave of Jesus Christ. Do you count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Are you a slave of Christ? Now, I realize looking around, actually I don't even have to look around, nobody is enslaved and chained with physical shackles here, right? I wouldn't have expected that coming here, even though I don't know much about this church. I would expect that you guys are not enchained with physical chains and shackles. Yet, every single one of us, every one of us, we're all slaves. We're either slaves of sin that leads to death, or you're sitting here today and you're a slave of righteousness. Slave to Christ. There, there is no middle ground. Do you hear me? There's no middle ground. There's nowhere else for you to opt into. You, you can't exempt from this. You are a slave of Christ or you are a slave to sin. So who's the author? Well, he was the biological brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, brother of James. But he doesn't care that you know that. He only wants you to know that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. The next point, who's the audience? <coughs> well, in this letter alone, we don't have a whole lot of other details about who the direct audience is. But we do know a little, based on what he says here, we know that they're the called ones. The called ones. Now, when we're talking about the called ones here, we're not talking about the general call. Okay? There's a general call in which God is calling, commanding all people everywhere to repent. Many are called, but few are chosen. We're not talking about this calling here. We're talking about, Judah's talking about the effectual call. The effectual call is for those who will effectually be brought into saving faith. An example of this, you can turn there if you want. It's, very, it's a passage that's very familiar to probably most of us here. Romans 8, 29, and 30. Romans 8, 29, and 30 says there, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, here's our word, called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, question. Who is the one who is calling? Who is the one who predestined? 
Who's the one who foreknew? Who is it? God. Good. God is the one who does this. So Judas writing to the called ones who have been called by God himself. And so if it's God, think with me, if it's God who predestined, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, if it's him and his power who did this, his power alone who did this, then you can never be uncalled. Never. Because God is the one who's bringing it to pass. And believe me, if you don't know that, you, you need to know God never fails. He never fails. He always accomplishes his eternal decree. Well, the next part. Those whom are, who are called are also beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. God shows his love. We, we heard about um, at the men's retreat, Psalm 145. He's good to all. But this is not that. This right here is a special, unique love that unbelievers don't know anything about. Not that they know part of it. They don't know anything about this love. Listen to 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You see the connection? There's a kind of love that the children of God have that the rest of the world does not have. God does reveal and show and demonstrate his love to the entire planet, to everyone in different ways. I mean, we're all his creatures. We all bear his image. This is all true. But we are not all his children. Again, this, this right here is a unique, special love reserved for his children alone. The next part, and kept for Jesus Christ. If you have an ESV, it says, kept for Jesus Christ. That is communicating the why. Why we are kept. Why is it? Well, it's for Jesus. Well, that's true. All things we see in Colossians, all things were created by him and for him. That, that's true. That includes this. But I don't, I don't think that that's what Jude has in mind. And other translations communicate this. King James, New King James, for instance, say kept in or preserved. Sorry, it says preserved in Jesus. Other translations say kept in. Okay, so the ESV kept, that word is the Greek word tereo. It has to do with preserving, actively preserving. Jude is communicating that although there will be false, dangerous, deceitful, damnable doctrines that are infiltrating the church, and we're going to get into that. And if you just read the rest of the letter, it, he goes into it more than we can, or we're only going to get to verse 3. But he gets into it. He wants them to know that these believers whom he's writing to, that are called by God, beloved by God, and kept by Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How does that song go? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand hand. Never. No power of hell. The attacks will come. They've come for centuries. They've come. From the beginning, from Genesis, they've come. The attacks will come, but we as the church will not be overcome. We will be preserved in Jesus. We will, we will be preserved by him. If we are in Jesus. Amen? We're moving along in verse 2. We're going through the first two verses decently quickly. There's so much more that can be said about all of this. It says there, May mercy, peace, and love 
be multiplied to you. Judah's writing, again, who's the audience? Well, he's writing to those who have received mercy, peace, and love. But if you follow along there, he seems to have, we like to call a holy discontentment. Holy discontentment, what's that? That's when something is good and you want more of it. Is that, is that bad? Well, Jude seems to have that. I don't think that's bad. He says, may it be multiplied to them. Who's the audience? They are, they are those who have received mercy, peace, and love. Yes, but not just so that they can have it and store it up, stash it away in, in their house and keep it all for themselves. No, he wants them to respond in light of it and show mercy, peace, and love. If you just look at Jude verse 22 and 23, I'll just read it. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear. You see, God, okay, think about this. God shows mercy toward us. Everybody here has received mercy from God. But in a, in a special and deep, profound way, we who have been rescued by him, we have received an immense amount of mercy from God. He snatched us out of the fire, <laughs> And so, in light of that, we ought to have that same felt compassion and mindset of wanting to snatch others out of the fire. Peace. We receive peace from the God of peace. Listen to Romans 16.20. Many of you are familiar with this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow. We talked about violence, warring violently. This is, this is a violent uh, verse right here. We need to war violently against heresies. And when we act violently against heresies, guess what? We're actually being like our Father, who is the God of peace. The God of, think about this, the God of peace is prescribing violence. <laughs> That's the way of the God of peace. Violence against heresies. And love. We love because He first loved us. And because He loves us, loves us, and He keeps us from destructive, damnable doctrines, we must love others, to teach others, and to steer them clear of the same false teachings. We receive love and we are to display it. And that's, what, that's who Jude is communicating and writing to. Beyond that, in this letter, we don't have a lot, whole lot that we can go off of who he's writing to. But that's what we have for now, who he's writing to. So let's go on to uh, my third point. Why? Why is he writing this letter? Verse 3, let's read it again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. First word there, beloved. Beloved. Let's just pause there at that word. Judas communicating a sincere, heartfelt love to his hearers. And he's doing that before confronting them with a huge concern that he has. Now, as an aside, we should model this. This should be our approach when confronting people. I mean, and this is an aside, it's not the main point, but I mean, how many of you guys have felt uh, uh, it's seeming like an attack from somebody who is just wanting to hammer and confront you? Should, this is a good example to model. He wants to, to display and show his love before confronting them. Judah's about, he's, he's in the midst here, about to give them strong, stern warnings throughout the letter. And so many, we know this, many hear words that are strong, warnings, um, maybe rebukes. People hear things like that, and what do they perceive it as? They perceive it as being unloving, unkind, harsh, right? But how should we as Christians view rebuke? 
How should we view everything, but specifically here, how should we view rebukes in light of what Scripture says about them? Well, Proverbs 27, there's a lot of Scripture that talks about receiving rebuke. Proverbs has a lot in and of itself. But Proverbs 27, it says there, We are better off to be wounded by a friend than kissed by an enemy. Jude here, he's writing two categories here. Friend, enemy. Is Jude the friend or the enemy of these people he's writing to? Which one? Friend or enemy? Friend. He is a friend. Of course, even more than a friend, he's a beloved brother in Jesus Christ. But according to this verse, the two categories, he is in the category of friend. Now, the false teachers, where are they at? Friend or enemy? Enemy. So we have the friend and we have the enemy. The proverb shows us the friend who wounds. What does the enemy do? Kiss. Remember? Kiss. The enemy kisses. Now, think about a kiss. Doesn't a kiss seem like such a loving thing to do? I mean, if, <laughs> like, you know, like you show affection. I mean, mom, my, I kiss my mom, and, you know, people, I mean, you see the holy kiss in the scriptures. Isn't a kiss seem like such a loving thing to do? Doesn't it? Well, we think about Judas Iscariot. And how did he betray the Son of Man? He did it with a kiss. And that's what's going on here. The enemy of this book, the enemy in this book, that we see here, they're false teachers. And these false teachers, they act and pretend to be loving. That's what's going on here. Let's look at verse 12 of Jude. These are hidden reefs. And he's talking about false teachers. At your love feast... As they feast with you without fear. You see that? Judas writing to people in this letter who are being kissed by an enemy. They're, they're feasting without fear. That means they're, they're not being detected as a threat. They're in their love gatherings. Now, how does this look like? The enemies who Judas writing about, these false teachers, they have the appearance of being friendly. How does it look like? Well, maybe they have a, a huge warm smile. Like maybe someone like Joe Olstein. Huge smile. Talking so warm. Maybe they have a lot of Bible memorized. Maybe they, they are very involved in the church gatherings and activities. All of this and so much more. You can Fill it in. All of that can be true and more, yet if they are preaching a false gospel, they are enemies. Just because someone comes with a warm greeting and smile does not necessarily mean that they aren't an enemy of the cross. Now, on the other hand, it's possible to inflict pain to someone a wound. Remember, the wound of a friend. It's possible to inflict wound on a friend out of care for them, out of love. Just listen to Paul, and this is how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 7. Just listen. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Wait, wait. Did he regret it or did he not regret it? <laughs> Which one is it? He says, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. He rejoices at the grieving? What's going on? He says, not because you were grieved, so not because of the wound in and of itself, but this is what he says, but because you were grieved into repenting. Okay, think about the hypothetical, excuse me, the hypothetical story of my child being on the second story. Let's change some details around again. Let's say that he's crawling on the ledge, and if he were to fall on the right, he falls that two-story drop. And if he falls on the left, there's a couple feet. Okay. My wife calls out to me. Let's replay it. And in my alarm, out of instinct, I dive toward him and smack him off to the second. 
I mean, yeah, on the second story, so falling a couple feet. Okay. What happened there? I hurt my son. I mean, there's no doubt, year and a half, he's probably bawling his eyes out, right? But what happened? Did I do it because I hated him? Did I do it because I wanted to inflict pain on him? No, obviously, it was pure love that I hurt my son. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that so loud. <laughs> and so, but you, see, you, see what, you see the point there. Jude is willing to wound them, these people, in order to help them to help them see the impending danger that is threatening their lives because of these false teachers. We called them terrorists to the church in the earlier message. So, wrapping this point up, coming in with an honest, strong, stern word that may inflict pain on those who hear is possibly the most loved, the most loving and appropriate thing that you can do for someone. And that is the case in Jude here. And this is why he's writing this letter. And the next part. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the, for the faith. So Jude is clearly stating and letting us know that he had an entirely different direction for the letter. He wanted to go on another direction initially. It's like I was on my phone, I was trying to do something initially, but something happened and the course was changed. Okay. The ESV says very eager New King James says very diligent. NASB says making every effort. Okay, so there's different ways of saying it, but clearly we see through all this a trend. We see that there was an excitement. Clearly, there was an anticipation. There was a looking forward of writing to these believers about a certain topic, their common salvation. This was his initial plan, and he made every effort to carry this out. Now, we don't know exactly where he was going. We can have some ideas in Scripture that talk about the common salvation that each and every believer has one for with another. I'll just go through a few because there are so many. There's tons of passages of Scripture. So, let's just look at a few. 2 Peter chapter 1. You can jot it down or just listen. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The NASB says, of the same kind of ours. So, while we're talking about faith, each believer vary on the degree, on the measure of faith. We see that in Scripture. So we differ on the measure of faith. However... Each and every one of us have the same essence of faith that connects us to the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have the same righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. All of us, and I do mean all of us, every single one of us who have been saved, we will, we will, mark this down, we will stand before the throne of God with the very, very righteousness of Christ himself. Listen, listen to me clearly. God cannot condemn you who are in Christ any more than he can condemn Christ himself. Listen to that again. Christ cannot, God cannot condemn you who are in Christ any more than He can condemn Christ Himself. If God could condemn Christ, then God can condemn you who are in Christ. But God cannot condemn Christ, and therefore God cannot condemn you because we have His righteousness 
How does Romans chapter 8, verse 1 go? There is therefore now no condemnation for some of you who are in Christ Jesus. Right? For most of you who are in Christ, for almost everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Is that how it goes? For you who are in Christ Jesus. That means for all, everyone. If you are in Christ There's no condemnation. You will not drink one ounce, one drop of condemnation because Jesus Christ took the last drop. There is not a single man, woman, or child that will be condemned in Christ. Every single believer has this in common. This is not something that is subject to change. This is not something that is subject to vary from believer to believer. No, this is now and forever how each and every one of us will stand before the Lord. Going through a a couple more. We are all new creatures in Christ. I mean, there's just so many that we can just pull from. And we all have the same, the same salvation in all these regards. We don't like communism, but in heaven, (laughs) we all have the same salvation. Of course, communism here is not good. There are so many marvelous things and where he could have gone. Let's look at one more. Ephesians chapter 4. We all belong to the same body, same spirit. We're called to the same hope. We belong to the same Lord, same faith, same baptism, same God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When it says all, that's talking about every single person, every single one of us. There is nobody excluded, not one. Brethren, we have a common salvation. This is clear throughout Scripture. There's so many, I mean, I'm getting excited, are you? There's so many exciting, marvelous things that we can dwell on, that we can consider and meditate on regarding the common salvation of God. So many directions, so many more insights that he could have expounded on, but something happened. Jew didn't go there. Well, I talked about modeling an example. Here's one example from Jude that we should model. Here's something to learn from him turning the corner and changing directions. Jude was a man, clearly from this example, who was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit and the need of the church. He was not all about his desires. His agenda, what he wanted to do, what was in his mind, and what he wanted to accomplish, and that was it. No. He surrendered all of what he wanted to do to the Lord. We need to learn from this example. And so with that said, let's turn our attention to where Jude's attention went. And so we see that in the next part. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Clearly, there was a necessity that arose. There was a need, and Jude felt with everything in him that it had to be met. The need was so great, so, so beyond in comparison to what he was going. It was so great that he changed the entire direction of the letter, and so that all his attention, his focus, his energy, all of it was centered on this need in order to meet it. It's like me on my phone. I, I was doing something important, but due to the urgent need of attending to my son, I had to. I mu- there was no other option but to put everything else, not even think about anything else, in order to go to my son. So Jude felt he recognized it, and he, re- he, with everything in him, he saw the need for believers to contend for the faith. It's to protect the message, to defend the truth, because the message, the gospel, the truth, 
It was under attack. We talked about terrorism and attacks. They were under attack. John MacArthur says this about the word contend. The Greek word for contend is the root of the English word agony. This is important. Note it. Agony. It's originally related to a stadium or a place of athletic competition. Listen to what Paul says in the same, the same uh, root word, agony, contend, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just listen. It says there, every athlete, that word athlete, that's the word, agony. So instead of saying athlete, you can say here, every agonizer, every contender. Exercises self-control in all things. They do it to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Okay, so talking about athletes, talking about contenders, talking about agonizers. Athletes who compete in the Olympic Games, they're competing for a gold medal. How did they get there? I guarantee you they didn't get there without great discipline, without self-control in basically every aspect of their lives. That's how they got there. But what does the text say in 1 Corinthians 9 that they're doing it for? They're doing it for a perishable wreath, a little trophy. Pastor Tim Conway, he, he did a message on this, and he talked about how, I think it's the trophy, they just, after it's all said and done, they stick it in their sock drawer, the majority of these people, and it's it's. They don't even think about it years later. That's what they're doing it for. They're doing it for a temporal wreath. Something that's quickly vanishing, fading. It's quickly passing, excuse me, passing away. So if they're doing it with such diligence and self-control and discipline for something that's passing away, how much more you who are sitting here and are believers in this gospel and contenders of this faith, how much more should you and I take this? How much more? This is not something temporal. We're not doing it for a temporal medal. <laughs> We're doing it for an eternal wreath. This is a, of eternal consequence. Judah is talking, he's writing to people, and he's trying to shake them up to see, for them to see the eternal consequence. Well, check this out. The word that Jude uses here for contend. That word contend, agonizomai, that's used all over the New Testament. Jesus himself even used this word. But this word that Jude is writing, this is the only time that this word appears. It's not agonizomai, it's epagonizomai. What is that? So that's contending, that's agonizing but to a greater intensity. Again, this is the only time that we see this word. This is the time in all of the New Testament that this word is used. And Judah's using it to appeal. It's an urgent appeal for his hearers to contend for the faith. So commentator Brian Bell, this is what he says about this word. Picture it. He says, it's a picture of two wrestlers grappling, sweating, muscles straining to the point of them bursting as they agonize against each other for the prize. This is what they're doing it for a prize. How are we, me and you, going to contend? How are we going to agonize for the faith if we're lightweights? If we're, if we're lightweights when it comes to the Word of God, if we're not disciplined, if we're living a, a life nonchalantly, how are we going to do that? Olympic contenders, they, they can't afford to be light. They can't afford to be lightweights when it comes to their temporal medal that they stuff in a box. They can't do that. How are we going to be lightweights? How are we going to be lightweights when it comes to contending for the faith? We must be diligent. Notice in the text, what are we to contend for? What is it? What is Jude appealing, urging them to contend for? What is it? The faith. See that there? 
the faith. It's not a faith. It's not a denomination. It's not one of the faiths out of many to choose from. No, it is the faith. This is to say the one true saving faith. Every other religion, the 42, we have a track in San Antonio, 4,200 religions, it says on the track, major religions. Lots of religions in this world. But all the religions, every other religion on the planet that ever has existed and ever will exist is somehow, in some way, shape, or form, a confidence in self. Who you are and what you can do, your hands can produce to earn or merit the forgiveness and favor of God. That's what all the religions come and and at the root of the issue come to. Christianity alone is not like this. Christianity is not about what you and I can do for God, but what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Christianity is not looking inward, but is looking outward to the only Savior for mankind. Jesus Christ, this man, he proved that he was God in the flesh. He proved that he defeated death, that he paid sin's debt by resurrecting after three days to pay for the very sin that each and every one of us, each and every one of us, even the children here, deserve to pay for. He paid that debt. And that is that, what I just said, that is the message of the faith. This is what Jude is appealing and urging his hearers to contend and agonize for. This is a matter of life and death. This is not a matter of a perishable temporal wreath. This is a matter of life and death. Now, I want somebody to, to answer this. There's a saying when someone gives you something of utmost value and importance. They say, guard this. Finish it. With your life. With your life. Guard this with your life. What does that mean? Guard this possession, guard what I'm entrusting to you as though your life depends on it. How many of you know Jeremy Volo, or at least know the name, Jeremy Volo? Okay, Jeremy Volo. Dear friend of mine, he was my pastor in Laredo. (laughs) Well, one time, I was, you know, especially then, still now, but was uh, newly preaching in Laredo, and... um, he wanted to help me, so he wanted to give me some precious commentaries. And so if you know Jeremy, he, he loves his books, which is, which is great, but he repeated the saying, guard this with your life, when he gave it to me. Not just once, I mean, I, I, he said it at least two or three times, if my memory doesn't fail me. He, he told me, no, 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 wait, 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 guard this with your life. So I, I took those books. And I didn't even leave his house. I was, I was sitting in my car right outside his house. And I, I said, oh, you know what, I have a phone. I'm going to take pictures of what I need. And I'm just going to quickly give it back to him. I don't want to deal with that responsibility. I mean, I have children here. I don't, I don't want to risk that. But ask yourself, what does the church of the living God have that God himself has entrusted to us. I'll tell you what, as great as those commentaries were, it doesn't compare it to any comment. It doesn't compare it to anything. Humans, we've created a lot of technology, a lot of great and fascinating things. It doesn't compare to it all combined. God has entrusted to us something of utmost value and importance, and it's the message of the faith the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to guard and protect this message as though your life depends on it. It's the reality. Think about this. Not only did God give us this message, not only did he show us, reveal it to us, a preacher came and and we saw this is the message of the faith. Not only did he give us that, 
Think about this. He also, if you're a Christian sitting here today, He also gave you eyes to see the message. He gave you ears to hear. He gave you a heart to receive the message and believe the message. He gave you taste buds, taste buds to taste and see that the Lord is good. If this is the case, we, and He gave us to it, this to us, and we see it, and we behold it, we have a duty to protect this message. And what kind of stewards are we going to be with what He has entrusted to us? We have a duty, not only to communicate this message, which I'm sure you guys do as well. In San Antonio, we, we go out Friday nights. We, we go to the college campus. We proclaim and communicate this message and glory to God. But that is not the burden of Jude right here. He has this burden to communicate to his hearers that they have a duty to protect and guard and preserve this message. This is why Jude is writing this letter. The last part of verse 3. That was once for all delivered to the saints. This message of the faith was, notice the word was, once for all delivered to the saints. This is indicating that what we have, for instance, recorded in Genesis, was not, despite what the hyper-dispensational group says, it was not an incomplete gospel. Things, sure, they became clearer with progression of Scripture, but it was not in any way an incomplete gospel. It's the same faith from the beginning. Delivered once for all. Notice the word delivered. This is indicating that there was a point in time that the message was revealed. Of course, again, progressive, uh, progression of Scripture made it more clearer. But the message itself never contradicted. It never changed. Now, there are some, like I mentioned, the hyper-dispensationals. They want to say, and I'm not talking about regular dispensation, the hyper ones, a lot of them, they want to say that depending on the age or dispensation, people were saved differently. For example, they say that during the time of Moses, people were actually saved by keeping the law if they kept it good enough. But Jude is appealing to this group of people not to contend for a faith that changed. No, he's, content, he's appealing and urging them to contend for the faith, which is the one never-changing faith. The message of the faith was revealed even during the, t the account of Adam and Eve. It's been the same ever since. Think about Adam and Eve. They sinned. They sinned against God Almighty. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see in Genesis, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were ashamed. Hebrews 4, our brother's going through Hebrews, I believe it's Kinsey, right? Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Just like Adam and Eve. We will give an account. We will not be able to hide on that day. Who you are and what your hands have produced, all of you will be exposed on that day. If we were exposed here before people just like us, sinners, we would be ashamed. How much more against the God who created us well, continuing in, in Adam and Eve, think, think about it because I believe the majority of us are familiar with it. We don't have to turn there. Just think about it. They attempted to hide their shame with fig leaves. Hide. This is the same, and this is the same. This is exactly what people do up to today as well. We're not talking about physical appearance and physical, literal fig leaves. We're talking about attempting to hide who you are and what you've done. And this is what we talked about the 4,200 major religions. This is what all the religions of the world do. They assume that by 
not doing certain things or possibly doing certain things that maybe perhaps God will accept them. They can hide their shame. This is man's form of fig leaves. This is what man and the religions attempt. Well, what happened after that with Adam and Eve? God kicked them out of the garden. You remember that? To, to demonstrate that God is holy and righteous and He's not even going to tolerate one sin in His presence. Think about this. We have sinned. They, they, they sinned once. They were kicked out. We have sinned more times than the hair on our head, the sand on the seashore, the stars on the sky, in the sky. Isaiah 59.2 says, we are separated from God because of our sin. There is a separation that we see. This is the one true faith delivered to the saints that we see from Genesis. And in Genesis, we see the same hope, the same message of the faith. Look, think about verse 21 of Genesis 3. It says there, God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. We see what John says in John 1. John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who covered Adam and Eve. It's the same faith. It always, every time that someone is going to be saved and rescued by God, it always must be God himself who clothes us. And it always must be with the righteousness of Christ, which is exactly what Genesis and all the Old Testament points to. Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures to the Pharisees, yet it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures for eternal life. I'm right here. Jesus Christ. This is the message of the one true saving faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. John MacArthur says that the rendering could also be once for all time. Inserting the time in there. Meaning, never ever does this message, I know I'm going long, but I'm almost done wrapping up. Never this message will ever need any revision, modification, correction, addition, subtraction, none of that. And the reality is, and I know this is true, this right here, this message, it needs a lot of that. I, I probably need to have a lot of things corrected. I can admit that. I will admit that. You know what? If anybody has any critiques for me, fine. I want to hear it. I, 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 I'm fine with it. Okay? But th we're, we're talking about the message of the faith, and that never needed, nor will it ever, ever, ever need it. Regardless, amen, glory to God, regardless of what anyone says. And there are people who say it. Mormons? They want to say that Joseph Smith heard from an angel and he came from heaven and he told him otherwise. He told him that there was something else. Jehovah Witnesses, they'll say that the word needs to be tweaked around and changed just a little bit. In the be How does it go? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. It's just one little a God. Let's tweak that word. Let's tweak the person of Jesus just a little. Muslims, they say that the scripture has been perverted. But Jude says, once for all, delivered to the saints. This was the burden that Jude had because of the urgent need due to the impending danger because of the false teachers that, will, that were infiltrating the church. Just like my entire direction was changed. It was on one thing, and then everything got pushed out because of my child hanging on the ledge of my two-story story house. Hypothetical if you didn't hear that before. <clears throat> but just like that, Jude changed his entire direction for the sake of the called ones that we saw, for the sake of the beloved ones, 
for the sake of those who are preserved. And God uses means. He used this, this as means to preserve them in Jesus. And He charged them, urged them, and appealed to them to contend for the faith. And that's what Jude would have us contend for. Amen? Father God, please wake us up. Please don't let us slumber as we heard in the other hour. Please, Father, we need you. We need you to accomplish this. We need your strength. Help us to stay awake, alert, oriented, and in your word. I ask you for, for this church here. Please guide them. Please direct them. Please be with them. And help us to glorify you on this day. In the name of your Son, amen.